Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on our weekly roundtable, the future of economic and social policy of the United States at stake as the U.S. Congress is in a log jam on President Biden's care economy agenda. Progressive Democrats are holding out, refusing to be held hostage by so-named moderate Democratic senators, Manchin and Cinema. And the deadline to raise the debt ceiling is fast approaching. Meanwhile, President Biden is swiftly dropping in the polls among women and people of color. And AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, people are losing faith in democracy. All this as young people are stepping up protests against governments around the world for dragging their feet on the climate crisis, and experts say we are living through the most explosive extinction episodes ever. How has the right wing effectively controlled the economic and political agenda no matter what party is in power? Who is funding them? Attacks against progressive thought increases as truth and democracy are under attack in schools and university. And remember, women's rights, these days, they too are under unrelenting attack. And on the international front, the tensions as Europe pivots away from the United States and the global South tries to get out from under the major super powers. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Democrats are huddling once again to see if they can reach agreement on the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package with spending for social health and climate programs. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin disclosed yesterday he told Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in July that his top-line limit for a reconciliation package was $1.5 trillion. My top line has been 1.5 because I believe in my heart that what we can do and what the needs we have right now and what we can afford to do without basically changing our whole society to an entitlement mentality. The impasse over the reconciliation package caused House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to once again delay a vote on a separate $1 trillion bipartisan bill for so-called hard infrastructure for roads, bridges, and the like. House progressives said they wouldn't vote for it unless there was agreement on the larger reconciliation package. House Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal said they're demanding the vote on reconciliation take place first. We have said clearly, and we reiterated this again to the Speaker, and we're in the same place, that we will not be able to vote for the, reconcil- for the infrastructure bill until the reconciliation bill has passed. CNN reports this morning that Democratic leaders are floating a $2.1 trillion reconciliation figure to see if all sides will agree. With only hours to spare, President Biden signed legislation to avoid a partial federal government shutdown and to keep the government funded through December 3rd. 
Efforts to stave off a second crisis seem likely to continue for the next couple of weeks as Democrats and Republicans dig in on a dispute over how to raise the government's borrowing cap. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says failure to raise the debt limit would lead to a financial crisis and economic recession. Nadia Ramlagan reports. The Senate passed a bill Thursday to fund the government, narrowly avoiding a midnight shutdown. On this vote, the yeas are 65, the nays are 35, the 60-vote threshold having been achieved, the bill is passed. Senators voted to fund the government through December 3rd, as well as provide emergency funding for disaster relief related to recent hurricanes, severe storms and western wildfires, and for Afghan refugee relocation. I'm Nadia Ramlagan for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. The Supreme Court says Justice Brett Kavanaugh has tested positive for COVID-19. The high court said in a statement Kavanaugh has no symptoms and has been fully vaccinated since January. The court says Kavanaugh's wife and daughters are also fully vaccinated and they tested negative. Thousands of climate activists marched in the streets of Milan, Italy, following a three-day conference in the run-up to next month's International Climate Summit of the World's Leaders. Ugandan youth activist Vanessa Nakate repeated the demand that the world's richest nations make good on their unfulfilled promises for $100 billion a year to adapt to the ravages of a heating planet. I and other activists will continue speaking, will continue striking, and will continue demanding for climate justice. And there is no climate justice without acknowledging that loss and damage is here with us now. The young climate activist denounced Italian police for temporarily detaining delegates who protested peacefully inside their Milan conference before Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi's speech yesterday. California Senator Dianne Feinstein has proposed legislation that would require all passengers on domestic airline flights to either be fully vaccinated, have recently tested negative for COVID-19, or have fully recovered. Feinstein said her legislation builds on a current CDC requirement that all air passengers traveling to the U.S. from a foreign country must provide proof of a negative COVID-19 test result or documentation of recovery. Feinstein said that air travel during the 2020 holiday season contributed to last winter's devastated COVID-19 surge. We simply cannot allow that to happen again, Feinstein said. The airline industry has opposed vaccination mandates for passengers, citing logistical difficulties. Pharmaceutical giant Merck says its experimental COVID-19 pill reduced hospitalizations and deaths by half in people recently infected with the coronavirus. The company said it would soon ask health officials in the U.S. and around the world to authorize its use. The study results were released by the company and have not been peer-reviewed. Ethiopia said it's expelling seven United Nations officials whom it claims are meddling in the country's internal affairs. The expulsions are the government's most dramatic move yet to restrict humanitarian access to Tigray province and its six million residents after nearly a year of war. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. 
and this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, a battle for the future of the United States, it seems, is being waged on multiple fronts, and the stakes are higher than ever before. On the political front, tensions are at an all-time high in Washington, D.C., as the nation narrowly averted another federal government shutdown. On Thursday, September 30th, the House of Representatives approved a Senate-passed bill to keep the government funded through early December, just hours before the midnight deadline. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has told lawmakers the U.S. will run out of ways to pay its bills around October 18th. If Congress fails to suspend or raise the debt seat, debt limit before the deadline, lawmakers risk a default that could cost millions of jobs, jeopardize government benefits, and crash the financial markets. Legislators have now pivoted to the ongoing negotiations on President Joe Biden's uh, $1.2 trillion Senate-passed infrastructure bill. Also on Thursday, House Democrats dropped plans to vote on the Senate's bipartisan uh, agreement, the bill back, uh, the infrastructure agreement after leadership and the White House failed to unite progressives and moderates around President Joe Biden's agenda, which is now in serious trouble. From the attacks on voting rights to the lack of movement on the George Floyd Act to cuts on progressive social programs, many are making it difficult for President Biden to advance the systemic changes he promised voters and many agree are needed for the country. And progressive Democrats have affirmed that they will not vote for the infrastructure bill, which is a bipartisan bill, before reaching a deal on the larger Build Back Better Act known as the Reconciliation Bill. On Wednesday, September 29th, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez warned that congressional Democrats could dump President Biden's $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill and not hold a vote on it at all. A day later, on Thursday, September 30th, Senator Joe Manchin and fellow conservative Democrat Senator Kristen Sinema dug in in opposing the proposed $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill, which is centered around building a care economy and protecting the environment. We have to keep in mind that Democrats need all 50 of their members in the evenly split Senate to back the legislation as they look to pass it via the budget reconciliation process. They want to avoid a Republican filibuster. Uh, Senator Manchin has said to the press that he wants to cap the top line spending in the package to only $1.5 trillion, which is $2 trillion less than President Joe Biden and congressional Democratic leaders, including Senator Bernie Sanders, are seeking. He has also said that in order for him to support the reconciliation bill, an expansion of Medicaid must include the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment limits federal funding for abortions. Keep this in mind as women's right to choose uh, very much under attack. Let us go to a clip now uh, from uh, CNBC on Democrats being stuck on the infrastructure vote. 
We're going to go to Washington right now because Elon Moy joins us with an update on the efforts to pass that bipartisan infrastructure bill and some late night work. Well, that's right, Andrew. There was no vote on that trillion-dollar infrastructure bill last night as Democratic leaders struggled to broker a deal between moderates and progressives in their party. Now, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi left the Capitol right around midnight. She told reporters that the two sides are not trillions of dollars apart, and she did express confidence that there would still be a vote today. Now, Pelosi spent much of yesterday evening holed up in her office with top White House advisors, Brian Deese and Susan Rice. In a statement, the administration said that Democrats share common goals and are closer to an agreement than ever, but obviously not there just yet. The compromise they're trying to hash out is not over the substance of the infrastructure bill, but the timing. Progressives won't support it until the bigger $3.5 trillion social spending package passes, too. But moderate Senators Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin aren't on board with that. They also met with White House officials last night. Manchin said he made clear his top-line number is still $1.5 trillion, and that shouldn't hold up the infrastructure bill in the House. I've never linked the two bills together, and, I'm, and pray to God that let's look at each bill with its own merits. There's a lot of good in both of them. We should be able to, to come to that agreement. Now, technically, the House has not adjourned, guys. It's just in recess, and a vote on the infrastructure bill is still on the official schedule. All righty, and I'd like to welcome our panelists. There's a lot that we have to uh, go through. You could tell from the intro at the uh, top of the hour, uh, the right uh, moving with some success to advance their agenda. The attack on uh, women's rights, on civil and human rights, a lot also happening on the international front. Uh, but first, let us welcome our panelists. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program, who works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. She's based in Mexico City, a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. She is a television host and commentator on global the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thanks, Margaret. Good to be here. All righty, Jackie Goldberg, governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5, a member of, she is a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Good to be here. And Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books, um, and he is the author of the uh, the book that won the American Book Award this year. He is the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Dr. Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Um, Jackie Goldberg, we're going to start with you. There's actually quite a lot uh, to cover, and um, so some of everybody likely won't get to comment on everything, but you all uh, know very well the areas that you would like to focus on. But Jackie, I want to start with you just um, giving us your thoughts on the lay of the land right now on Capitol Hill. 
Joe Biden uh, dropping, it seems, quite a bit in the polls, especially among women, black people, other people of color. Um, His agenda seems right now to be stuck uh, on Capitol Hill, although likely, uh, you know, there will be some kind of deal. But there is a lot of attention on the cost uh, of the, his care agenda and not so much of what's actually in his care agenda, which is actually very popular among both Democrats and Republicans. So it really remains to be seen what's going to happen and also some shifting going on among the power relations in Congress because you have progressive Democrats um, making their, flexing their muscle and in some ways challenging Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi to say not so fast. You you know, you're going to have to listen to us. If not, nothing is going to get through. Jackie Goldberg. Yes, yeah, so there's still a deal there, and this is a setback that if she can't get it done uh, today, but it is not the end of the struggle because this, there is going to be a reconciliation bill. The fight is still with some people who I believe have a death wish for the Democratic Party, and that's uh, Manchin and, and Sinewa, that because they, they, I'm sure, they're political people. They understand what I understand when I was in the state legislature, and that is that there are some things you have to do, and if you don't do them, uh, there are serious consequences, not for you, just you personally, but really for the entire party. Um, and those are battles that get fought, but eventually there will be a bill, and there will be a deal. Uh, I don't know what it will have in it. I don't know whether uh, Manchin will get his $1.5 trillion or the Hyde Amendment. I don't know whether he'll get that. Uh, he'll get something, though. And cinema is really the biggest problem because she has not said what she needs. You know, in a negotiation, the way, the way it happens when you have leaders of, the, of parties in, in legislative bodies is that they find out what everyone's bottom line is, and that's when the negotiations are successful. I think the fact that cinema has not even said what she needs to have in the bill uh, is really the biggest problem, much bigger than Manchin, much bigger than Manchin. They'll get Manchin. I don't know what they'll do to get cinema. And I've never seen anything like this before. You know, I spent a lot of years in legislative bodies, and there's always a deal there as long as everybody is willing to say that they want a deal. And that's the one thing that I don't know about uh, in this particular situation. Right. And, and uh, Laura Carlson, uh, going to you, because... You know, in the middle of of all of this, people are not really talking a lot about what's actually in this infrastructure bill or in his care economy, but there's a lot in it that would benefit women um, from uh, child care, uh, from increased pay for home care workers, uh, you know, those who are paid to care for those um you know, people who are elderly, people with disabilities, the expansion of the uh, child tax credits, um, you know, you know, lowering the cost of uh, prescription uh, bills, uh, dental care. I mean, so much in there that people support, but in particular, um, really hit women. This is happening at the same time that 
women's rights, I mean, I, I kind of posed the question. I said, remember women's rights? It seems to be under attack on so many fronts. And on uh, the October the 2nd, uh, there will be marches organized by the Women's March in Los Angeles, the Women's March Foundation, the Women's March Movement generally, and over 600 uh, sites around the country. And I, I saw an op-ed this morning uh, saying, are people too kind of burnt out to defend Roe versus Wade because women's uh, right to choose is so under attack. So what's happening on the Hill has to be seen also within this context and also the attack happening on impoverished women because what Manchin is doing and wanting to say for the child tax credits, for example, uh, that there has to be a quote-unquote work requirement. We spoke about that last week, as though being a mother isn't work. It's just the hardest job uh, there is. And also um, perhaps challenging or, or cutting the immigrant families from receiving uh, the child tax credit. So a lot of attacks on, on women's rights all around. I'm wondering if you want to uh, say anything about that and anything else about what's happening on the Hill. Laura Carlson. Yeah, definitely. This is not just a numbers game. When Manson says he wants to reduce the reconciliation package from $3.5 trillion to $1.5 trillion, he's talking about having a direct and dire effect on human lives, and particularly, as you pointed out, on women. We have the child tax credits that primarily affect women as primary caregivers, and we also have the Hyde Amendment, which is the prohibition of uh, of federal funding and and the state matching funds to fund uh, uh, the cost of abortion in public clinics. These are not only attacks on women; they are specifically attacks on impoverished women, people at the greatest uh, level of vulnerability, and especially now with the crisis and the the combined health and economic crisis. So this is this is uh, an issue that directly affects their lives, and women cannot afford to continue to be the silent majority on this. The fact that there will be marches across the nation on Saturday is a good sign. There's been a lot of organization for that. However, it isn't clear that they're going to be the kind of massive marches that we need to make voices heard, not just on Roe v. Wade and the abortion issue, but on these other issues that are involved in the reconciliation package that really affect our lives. There was a hearing in which three very brave Democratic congressional members um, stood up and shared their abortion experiences in a hearing called A Dire State, examining the urgent need to protect and expand abortion rights and access in the United States. And that was, again, a step in the right direction. But whatever happened to the Violence Against Women Act? You know, when we talk about this Build Back Better and what we need, these issues that are critical to women's, women's lives have been um, invisible in many ways. They've taken a very low profile, and that can't be. This affects all other issues. You know, women who face violence and don't have recourses, uh, are subject to homelessness. It's a health issue. It's obviously an equality and a discrimination issue. And so they have to be in there. 
by delaying the vote, it was, I think, a positive move. It was necessary to show the power of progressives here, and especially when it's beginning to look like there's an actual strategy among the conservatives to um, completely betray the American public, and particularly the Democratic Party, by pushing through an infrastructure bill that favors fossil fuels, the opposite of what was supposed to happen, and has a number of very negative aspects to it, and then reneging on any any commitment they make on the uh, reconciliation bill. So from the outside, and I'm happy to hear Jackie state that she thinks that, you know, Manchin and Panema will have to come to a deal on this and based on her extensive experience on the inside, because from the outside, it really kind of looks that like there isn't a, not, uh, a lot of leverage, that there, uh, there could be a, just an outright betrayal even after some kind of a, a dilemma is called. The New York Times is reporting that in the middle of obstructing the nation's most urgent legislation in decades, Sinema held a a fundraiser with corporate groups lobbying against the reconciliation package, you know, asking for uh, thousands and thousands of dollars apiece payable to Sinema for Arizona. So she's not even looking for Democratic Party support for her re-election. Um, so I'm just wondering where the leverage is there and what you can do with people like M- Manchin and Sinema. They're drunk on their own power. They've abandoned any commitment to the greater good. And why do they do it? Because they can. That's the system we have. A single senator, a group of three House members can block these provisions that their colleagues and the U.S. public overwhelmingly approve. Uh, we have to do something about this situation, and one of the things that has to be done is what's happening uh, tomorrow with the Women's March, with marches, and, and the voice of the U.S. people has to be clear about saying what's in these packages are absolutely vital for our lives, for our children's lives, for our families, and for the nation. And until that voice becomes strong enough, this quagmire could continue, and it's really wearing on everyone's nerves. Absolutely. And and the question is, is if there is a deal, what's going to be in it and who's going to be cut out? And again, the impact on the most vulnerable uh, women in particular. But uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, I mean, in the middle of all this, I mean, Joe Manchin, he's strutting around as though he is the president of the United States. But The, the Guardian has an article uh, today entitled Joe Manchin, America's Climate Decider in Chief is a Coal Baron. And apparently he is making at least half a million dollars a year in dividends uh, from millions of dollars of a coal company stock that he owns, a company that is run by his son from uh, energy uh, systems. And Manchin started that um, in 19. 19- 88. So are we surprised that he's a big defender of uh, fossil fuels? Uh, but also, Dr. Horn, you know, I'm not really that surprised to see the concern of women and people of color as reflected in the polls of Biden dropping in the polls uh, among black people. I mean, looking at what's happening at the border, the fact that uh, voting rights, there hasn't really been 
substantive movement on that. The George Floyd Act um, um, uh, policing and and there was such an uproar that happened after we we all watched uh, the murder of George Floyd. That basically you know has collapsed. We see somebody like uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass who was so important in that negotiating on the George Floyd Act. Now basically it seems as though she is going to be leaving Congress because she has thrown her hat in the ring to run for mayor of Los Angeles. I mean, you know, there there's a lot uh, to unpack there. Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, first of all, I'm all in favor of bashing Joe Manchin, but I think what we need to understand is how and why it is that Donald J. Trump won the poorest and one of the whitest states, his own West Virginia, Manchin's own West Virginia, by 39 points. How and why it is that the richest man in West Virginia, uh, governor, is the governor, Governor Justice, uh, who, of course, is also a Republican. I think that's what we need to begin to unpack, because, of course, we can run Joe Manchin out of the Senate, but if he's replaced by a justice figure, well, then I'm not sure how much progress has been made. Now, with regard to the George Floyd Act, it's it's obviously a setback and, and crucially important because it reveals and exposes what the Republican uh, process is. That is to say, Senator Tim Scott uh, of South Carolina, the GOP's only uh, black member in the senatorial caucus, basically slow-walked that particular piece of legislation. He refused to budge on denying federal funds to police departments that use chokeholds or no-knock warrants, the same kind of no-knock warrant that led to the death of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, a few years ago. Uh, Pay attention to the USA uh, Today editorial today that talks about this issue of qualified uh, immunity for police officers, which basically gives them a license to kill, rape, and steal while evading civil responsibility and oftentimes criminal responsibility. Now, fortunately, the state of California has stepped up. Governor Newsom has just signed a bill that will help to uh, put a patch on some of the uh, bleeding wounds in the state of California with regard to police misconduct. But at the same time, pay attention to what's on the headlines today, this University of Washington study that suggests that for the past four decades, there have been 31,000 people killed by the police with 17,000 unaccounted for. That is to say that this police terror, this epidemic, has been underestimated and that black people were three and a half times more likely to be killed by the police than those defined as white. And at the same time, there is a parallel epidemic. The New York Times reports today that just last year alone, There were 70,000 black girls under the age of 18 missing one year alone. And in the United States as a whole, although black children are only 14 percent of the U.S. uh, children's population, they constitute 31 percent of the missing children in this country. Now, obviously, this is a state of emergency. The good news is that you have more black outreach to the United Nations and the international community generally. You have U.N. investigations in motion. This is an emblem of the fact that many in the black community basically feel, as our ancestors felt uh, hundreds of years ago, that it's unlikely that you'll get justice if you solely rely upon the goodwill and good wishes of the people who share this continent with us. 
the bad news is is that we need more national coordination and just like the occupy wall street movement is marking its 10th anniversary uh, this year but it's basically become a dead letter and i think part of it has to do with the fact that it's so decentralized i'm afraid to say that the black lives matter movement which has made gigantic strides in fighting this police terror i think it really needs more centralization because we need more coordination at the national level if we're to take advantage of this international goodwill and speaking of the international goodwill i'm afraid to say that as we move into our international agenda it would be uh, idiotic and delusional to on the one hand go to the international community and plead for relief and plead for assistance at the same time of standing with people in the United States particularly those in Washington who want to launch cold war 2 against Russia and China when those are the nations most likely to speak up in our behalf somehow we're going to have to square that circle Right and uh Dr. Horn uh, just underscoring your point of course the Washington Post and other news outlets are reporting today that uh killings by police are undercounted by more than half and what does that tell you about what's going on with with coroners and and medical examiners office um because they must know absolutely what's going on and the missing black girls that's just the children in terms of missing black women in south los angeles alone there're likely more than 200 at least 200 and none of that gets any uh any play uh to say the least and on the governor uh Newsom's bill um on policing there are eight measures that he signed into law this is Newsom of California which include raising the minimum age for police officers from 18 to 21 allowing their badges to be permanently taken away for excessive force dishonesty and racial bias and in addition uh the new law sets statewide standards on law enforcement's use of rubber bullets and tear gas for cl- crowd control and further restricts the use of techniques for restraining suspects in ways that can interfere uh with breathing. Well, we'll see how all of that goes. But what we're going to do now is just to uh, uh take our station break. When we return, our panelists continue with us a lot uh to discuss here. Don't go away. You won't want to miss any of this. We'll be right back. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things we would think say you could do for this world to start. When the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl jump together. Who be teacher? I go let you know. Who be teacher? I go let you know. Who be teacher? I go let you know. great uh fella kuti teacher don't teach me nonsense this is margaret prescott host of sojourner truth if you're a member of facebook you can like and friend us on facebook uh where we have a community calendar uh videos and other stories uh, a lot more there and uh our you can also uh check out our website at 
www.sotrueradio.org our handle on Instagram at Twitter at SoTrueRadio we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud and in the United States we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the Bronx the Bronx in New York City and internationally to our SoundCloud listeners in the UK it is our weekly roundtable and our panelists are Laura Carlson Jackie Goldberg and Dr. Gerald Horn. Um, now, before we uh, we just carrying on here with our discussion, there's so much um, that we really wanted uh, to touch on and discuss today. We wanted to give our panelists a chance to really uh, focus in on a particular story uh, that they wanted to focus on. But before doing that, though, I would like you all to weigh in on this dangerous shift that we're seeing to the right. Uh, not only what's happening in politics, because it, it seems as though it doesn't really matter who is in power, who is in control, who is it, the president and the majority in the House or the Senate, um, the right wing seems basically to be in control uh, of the economic and in many ways the political and economic agendas, in many ways also the uh, social agendas. And that is also in so many other areas of life because you see in state legislatures, uh, there is sometimes a very, very quiet move of conservatives taking over state legislatures. Also uh, at schools, I mean, the idea that um, school board members uh, now need security and are calling in, asking asking the Biden administration for help to protect them from the attacks that they're getting and also the on co university campuses of uh, professors that are considered uh, liberal uh, professors uh, being put on lists and, and being called out and their jobs and tenure being challenged and the teaching of truth, the teaching of history on the challenge list. Let's do a round on that and then we can go more to the international front and more of what you all would like to discuss there. But uh, Jackie Goldberg, we're going to start with you on this front uh, because you, I suppose, like Dr. Horn, very much on the front lines uh, because you are a member of a, of a school board, uh, Dr., um, Dr. Goldberg, Jackie Goldberg. Yes, well, you know, the fight over U.S. history is not a new one. Uh, you know, really, uh, if, if most Americans do not realize that right now there are two versions uh, of, of U.S. history textbooks in America. There's the northern version and the southern version. The northern version is aimed uh, basically at California and New York and Pennsylvania and, and in Illinois. And uh, the southern version, for example, does not refer to a civil war, but a war between the states, for example. There was no civil war. Uh, and on and on and on. This started with a couple of religious uh, right-wingers called Mel and Norma Gabler in Texas. And they began creating a, they created a 12,000-person uh, mailing list, and they were able to influence textbook companies to, in both literature and, and in uh, um, uh, uh, history particularly. Right now, 
the political guys is called uh, a critical race theory, which of course is an idiot thing to talk about because it's only a graduate school look at systemic racism, such as in law enforcement, for example. It's a way of looking at it through a lens of race. It has nothing to do with the teaching of U.S. history. What we are talking about in, in all over the country is the 1619 Project of New York Times, but it's also of, of a, a, an attempt in many, 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 many states to make sure that young people understand that systemic racism is a part of American history from its earliest inception, and that that is not a an attack on white people or on Asian people or on black people or on brown people. It is a a reality that needs to be understood. That we need to understand that the kinds of things that you uh, find in American life today have a history, and that history lets you understand what is going on today. You cannot understand today without understanding, for example, the Reconstruction period and the sellout uh, with the Rutherford B. Hayes election. You cannot understand what's going on in American history today without understanding this. Yet there are people around the country attacking school board members and attacking people on college campuses that are trying to get uh, this to be stopped, to say, oh, no, no, we don't want to have diversity in history. There are now states uh, in the United States, I believe, 25 states have proposed to take action that will restrict how teachers discuss racism and sexism. 25 states. One group in Nevada is calling for teachers to wear body cameras. Under a bill and pros in Arizona, teachers will be $5,000 if any student feels guilt over their race from the teaching of history. So what's happening is, is that they, this is becoming a political, uh, political um, agenda for the 22 elections. This is going to be a big part of state elections and school board elections around the country. And it's going to be a part of this notion that says that at some point or another, children need to be protected. That's the, 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 the line. Children need to be protected from knowing everything that's not right about America because it'll make them less patriotic and patriotism is important. And so anything in a, a U.S. history book or in a literature book that undermines uh, patriotism should be eliminated. In Texas, they are literally taking people out of the textbooks, important historical figures, uh, if they uh, had something to do with civil rights. In other states, they are passing laws that say that teachers who teach diversity, uh, who teach that there uh, is a, a way to understand uh, American history, uh, is it's being con conf uh, confused intentionally described as trying to teach children to hate each other, trying to teach children to, uh, to uh, deal uh, with one another by accusing each other of being racist and so forth and so on. And, of course, none of that is a tr the truth, but when you have a television station uh, that says it day and night and when you have people all over the country going to school boards and screaming at them and yelling at them, 
uh, saying that you can now have any discussion of you cannot have any discussion of systemic racism in schools. That's their goal. No discussion of systemic racism. You cannot define American history as something other than the creation of a nation based on the Declaration of Independence. That's their goal. That's the only thing you need to know about the early history of America. Well, of course, if you do that to children, then children will grow up not understanding the society they live in, which will make it much harder for us to address it. So this is a big fight, and it is not going to go away. And we are going to be dealing with this all over the country. In states like California, where most of us are willing to be, you know, take a stand because we have a more liberal constituency, I would say uh, we'll probably be all right. But already the call-in people, it's really the same people who are the anti-vaxxers who call in. They're the same folks. It's a group of folks who have decided that basically uh, schools should be run uh, as, as they personally see fit, which means without masks, without vaccinations, without social distancing, let everybody just take care of themselves. And it is going to be illegal to talk about anti-racism training or to talk about helping teachers understand their biases that they may not be aware of. All of that is being challenged around the country at school boards and at universities. And it is a fight we will win, I believe, but it will not be without tremendous, tremendous battles in which teachers will be caught in the crosshairs. Uh, already, uh, a lot of the teacher magazines I personally subscribe to are talking to teachers about how to go ahead and teach what they know is truth and that there will be lots of us to defend them. But I think it's going to get very hard in many states for teachers not to be watched because we have students now in schools who take uh, pictures of the slides that teachers use in discussing an issue, and then they send them to a location where they're being gathered by these right-wing organizations. There are right-wing students who are now taping, uh, uh, without the knowledge of the teacher, exact words of teachers on certain issues and trying now to get them fired. I get letters now uh, from uh, parents saying, in my son's school, they said this about sex education, and I disagree. Don't let nobody should talk to my child about family life education. I get letters that say, you better not do that critical race theory here or we're coming after you, gal. So it is a very difficult time, but I believe it is critical that we decide as a nation that it is time to tell the truth about America, good, the bad, and the ugly. Because when people know their true history, they understand how to make changes in their current world. Absolutely. And, and Dr. Gerald Horn, um, you also on, on the front lines, uh, being a professor, being a very a histo and historian. And this uh, 1776 Project PAC, um, they are backing as, as many as 50 school board races in seven states. They basically want to take over uh, school boards. They've been funding a lot of the protests against critical race theory, claiming that it's cultural Marxism, you know, that it is anti-American, but also very troubling is these lists of, there is a, a, a site, a website, um, asking students and others to expose and document uh, professors who quote unquote, 
discriminate against conservative students, promote anti-American values, and advance leftist propaganda in the classroom. The site called Professor Watch List, it's not without um, a precedent. Um, predecessors include the now defunct noindoctrination.org and more. So, uh, Dr. Horn, your thoughts on all of this, and I'm wondering the impact perhaps it may have on historians like yourself, if any, Dr. Horn. Well, the impact is significant, and notwithstanding the rather troubling picture that yourself and Jackie Goldberg have painted, in some ways it's worse in your bleakest words. What I mean is that increasingly in recent years, you've had an attempt by leading black intellectuals to paint a different picture of the origins of the United States, not only the aforementioned 1619 project of Nicole Hannah-Jones, but the recently deceased uh, Jamaican philosopher, Charles Mill, who taught in the United States, his book, The Racial Contract which came out in 1997, or the recent book by Tyler Stovall, a former UC Berkeley professor of white freedom, and some of my work where I the Haitian filmmaker and his Exterminate All the Boots. Well, what's striking about all of these different attempts is that they not only receive attack predictably from the right, the Trumpist forces, but also from liberals and even those who consider themselves to be Marxists. Because all of these forces really are invested quite heavily in the traditional understanding of the origins of the United States of America, for whatever reason, and are railing substantially and substantively against any attempt to revise that understanding, which is obviously feeding in to this right-wing attempt to purge the professoriate, to purge high school teachers and principals under the guise of fighting critical race theory. Now, of course, there are those who might suggest that this is not a coincidence that uh, what you expect, because all of these forces, conservative, liberal, and so-called Marxists, are defined as white, and some might argue that they all have an investment in, in so-called white privilege, but whatever the case, it's leading us to the brink of disaster, which of course brings me uh, to the point that's burning up the news, waves, news wires right now, uh, which is that the United States came dangerously close to a coup d'etat in January 2021, and the way voter suppression is going as we speak, we'll probably have a replay in November 2024. And in this regard, Southern California is going to play a pivotal role because part of the reasoning for the coup in January was based upon memos written by a Chapman University law professor, John Eastman, based just south of you, Margaret, in Orange County. And we can expect a replay of that attempt in November 2024 and January 2025. And all of this fits together like a jigsaw puzzle, because just like voter suppression will repress the vote and suppress the vote, the failure to pass the George Floyd Policing Act will be quite intimidating, and it can unleash a reign of terror against any of those who would seek to object to these attempts to voice the right-wing rule on the United States forever and more. 
Right, and, and Dr. Horn, uh, some good news, which is that the uh, the Guardian is reporting that there's uh, predicted to be a wave of U.S. labor unrest with tens of thousands uh, going on strike within weeks from, from Hollywood to academia and uh, to much more, um, healthcare workers, et cetera, because we know everywhere there is oppression, we have to assume that people are, are fighting back and people who are complacent uh, wake up Sleeping Beauty <laughs> um, because there's there's a lot at stake here. Uh, Laura Carlson, uh, going to you as we uh, wrap up here in our final segment um, on the international front. Uh, one of the things I mentioned are countries in the global south. Last week we talked a little bit about that important summit that took place in Mexico City, but generally uh, some countries in the global south really trying to get out from under uh, the superpowers, including um, the United States, increasingly China, uh, by the way. And I wondered if you wanted to share your thoughts on anything, not just that, um, that you wanted to report on in terms of south of the border. Laura Carlson. There was a very important uh, meeting, the one we talked about, of the community of Latin American and Caribbean nations that was notable because it's kind of reviving this space that was created years ago, about a decade ago, and that has the characteristic that it excludes the United States and Canada. And so these countries came together and said, we have to find a way to form a South-South alliance. It was ambiguous in some ways, but the general purpose of CELAC, as it's called by its initials, is is that to form a South-South alliance to deal with the problems that these countries are, are facing without the hegemony of the United States being involved. This is a positive aspect. They, became, they, they adopted a critical plan to confront uh, the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, that was developed by the economic Latin American Economic Commission, and so it opens up this space to create more solutions in that way. Uh, we're also seeing some other efforts in other places. Uh, there's, a, there's going to be a, a high-level summit, uh, the Forum on Chinese-African Cooperation in Senegal next month. Well, we're already in October, so it's later this month. And that that will be attended by some 50 African countries, and will be focused on uh, vaccinations against COVID-19, economic recovery, and infrastructure developed there. Now, we don't know what will come out of that, or how much it will be able to uh, to open up again some space in terms of South-South alignments. The important thing, as we look at some of these efforts and as we look at China being involved uh, in some of these efforts in, in, in the diversification of foreign relations, as well as strengthening the South-South ties, it's very important to be constantly saying that this is not a Cold War, to not necessarily see this as a danger. The countries are going to have to deal with their own problems in terms of Chinese hegemony or conditioning of projects, which does occur, or destructive extractive projects, which does occur. But in itself, it should not be seen as a danger, but rather as a challenge. How do we create more equitable and um, 
right. types of relationships that allow for more self-determination. So I think that's, that's, that's very important. And then finally, yep. on the international front, the elections in Germany with the, um, with the Social Democrat Party winning, uh, with Olaf Scholz, it's very middle of the road election, but the Greens also were able to increase their overall vote and their representation in the parliament. So we may see a uh, move at least opening up some more spaces for leadership on climate change. There's still a lot to be determined because of the way the coalitions come down, but that will be something to watch. Again, maybe breaking away, too, with uh, U.S. controls as uh, the shifting of power takes place, not just within Germany, but within the European Union in whole. And the final right. thing I wanted to uh, mention that's in, is immigration. Okay, um, Laura, we do want to give um, Dr. Joe Horn a, a chance also to talk about a few things on the international front. Sorry, sorry about that, but uh, the tensions um, as Europe pivots away from the United States and the um, and also as the Global South is, as Laura just mentioned, trying to get out from under um, major superpowers. Uh, Dr. Horn, the, you know, your final thoughts on that. I'm afraid we only have a few more minutes. And again, apologies, Laura Carlson. Uh, we'll continue that discussion. Uh, Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, just yesterday there was a very important summit between the United States and the European Union in Pittsburgh trying to get together on a trade and technology agenda that would seek to be part of the encirclement plan of China. The problem there is that Germany increasingly is becoming distant from U.S. policy with regard to China because China is its largest trade partner. In fact, Chancellor Merkel's uh, top uh, foreign policy advisor just advised in Der Spiegel that we all should drop the term the West, unquote, because as he sees it, that puts forward a kind of misleading notion that there is unity between Washington and Brussels and Washington and Berlin that doesn't exist. And, of course, France is still smarting over this Australian submarine deal where they were elbowed out by the United States and lost a multi-billion dollar deal, and that will not be forgotten anytime soon. And at the same time, Washington's had to retreat and having to release from a Canadian detention the chief financial officer of Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications giant, on the grounds that uh, Huawei was violating U.S. sanctions against Iran, uh, this also led to China detaining Canadian nationals and, in fact, U.S. nationals as well, who were released on the same day that she was released, which shows that China is willing to retaliate against any U.S. measure. Right, and thank you for that, uh, Dr. Horn. And and Laura, uh, just if you could want to finish your point, we have like just about 30 seconds or so before we have to wrap up. Uh, Laura Carlson. Oh, thanks. No, I was just saying that immigration, which is also an international um, issue, was not included. Again, the parliamentarian cut it out of the reconciliation package. Now they have to go and look for another formula. There are people in Congress who won't vote for it without some progress on immigration, just as all these factors we've been talking about, climate change, um, this inequality on a global level, and U.S. intervention are increasing the expulsion, the expulsion of people from their own countries, with Haiti being the most prominent example in recent years, and Central America close behind. 
Right. Well, thank you. Another fascinating uh, panel. We so appreciate uh, all of you, Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn, but we are out of time. Want to thank all of you. Also want to thank our audio engineer, Kiana Williams, assistant producer, Romero Funes. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. Go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Please remember to stay safe. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.